morning. So uh, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. So uh, we're continuing this trek through this book of the Bible, uh, just four chapters. We're closing out chapter 3 today, and then we get to creep a little bit into chapter uh, 4. So we're looking at 3.17 through 4.1. Follow along. You'll see uh, the words on the screen as well, I believe. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning as your people. And I pray now with the aid of your Holy Spirit that you would incline our hearts, open our eyes, Give us understanding, and please satisfy us with your word and with your promises. This morning, pray for um, other partners and churches around central New York. I think of our church, Missio Church, congregation downtown in the valley in Kaz. I pray that you would be with them, uh, be with Co- uh, Covenant Church, and just many of our partners here around the globe. I think of uh, two of the other elders on staff at Missio, who right now, one is in Hong Kong, Uh, and the other is in Uganda. And I pray that you uh, be with them, and just what a great reminder of the global church gathered today on the Lord's Day. Prayer and praise and hearing and reading God's Word. May we continue to devote this day to you and to doing good to others. Uh, We give you now this time, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Donald Whitney uh, starts his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, with this sentence. Here it is. Discipline without direction is drudgery. Discipline without direction is drudgery. And it's a great sentence, and it's a true sentence. And I want to modify that sentence a bit to fit my purpose and aim with this sermon, the the text that we're looking at today. And and so here's my modified sentence, using a little bit of some of the words he chooses, but I'm going to tweak it a bit. Here's my sentence. Not as good, but nonetheless, I'm tweaking it. The journey without a destination is drudgery. The journey without a destination is drudgery. Now, I also think that that is a true statement. I mean, can you imagine taking a family road trip across country just for the fun of it with no destination in mind? It doesn't make much sense. Uh, Our family, um, we're a family of four. We're in the back right there. My wife, two kids. Um, We moved up here 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, uh, to central New York. We have no family in central New York. The only reason we're in central New York 
is to participate with God in the redemption of this place. Uh, so we have family, my mom and family live in Pittsburgh, dad and family live in Delaware, uh, all of Julie's family lives in Florida, and that's where we moved from, Florida, over 10 years ago. And I say that to say we are on the road a lot, a ton of road trips. So if we have any time off, we're taking a family vacation, it's usually on the road to visit extended family. And all of Julie's family live in Sarasota. I mean, her brother, her sister, their families, we're the black sheep of the family. Like we, um, we left them, they remind us of it all the time. They tell us they're praying for us to return, and we go down there a lot. And it's a two-day drive to Sarasota, Florida, 22 hours there, and then you have to get back, 22 hours back. And we do it a ton, to the point where my daughter, Sophia, who turned 12 on Friday, she says, Dad, our car smells like road trip. That's not a good thing. Um, I mean, you imagine, like, uh, uh, endless hours in the car, uh, audiobooks, music, conversations, long days, the never-ending highway, hotels, the cost of gas, the, the tiredness of it all. But we do it because we have this destination in mind. We're going there to visit family. Now, there have been two times over the last decade when we've done that drive and we sweetened the pot a little bit and we included a trip to Disney World and Universal Studios. But usually it's just family. And, and, and I think about these road trips. I mean, I do have happy memories. I, I think of them fondly. Um, but I can't say I'm ever looking forward to the drive. But the destination, our family would tell you, does make it worth it. We can suffer through it. We can brave the two days in the car down there because the destination is clear. We're going to see grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and sometimes Mickey Mouse. That's why we can endure it. The journey... Without a destination is drudgery. Uh, if we're just driving to Florida, to drive to Florida, only to turn around again, that would be insanity. There'd be no purpose, no destination, no aim, no goal in mind. Uh, it would be brutal for our family of four. I understand some of you are younger in your 20s or something romantic about a road trip. You hang out with your friends, you go cross country. But even then, the, the point of that would be to see the sights and to hang out and enjoy the adventure. Uh, not so for our family. I mean, when we go to Florida, that's what we're doing. And we just, we grin and bear it. And then we, we remind each other of some of the happy conversations and audiobooks later. Well, it's this kind of thing, I think, that Paul's reminding uh, this beloved church in Philippi of. Uh, those people are suffering hardship. You've heard these themes through the first three chapters. Uh, Paul is suffering hardship as he uh, is in prison at the time of writing this. And um, they're concerned for Paul, understandably so. And they're wondering if the cross of Christ is worth it. Is it worth the hardship and trials? Is it worth the pain and difficulty and hardship and being associated with Christ? Is there an easier way? Can we um, increase comfort? Can we reduce criticism? Is there a way to do this apart from the cross of Christ? Can we maximize comfort now? Can we compromise now and still get to the same point? Paul is reminding this church that that's not how this works. And in fact... The exhortation, really the main theme of our section is 
um, Paul's exhortation to this church to stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord Jesus. Uh, That's the main point. God's people are to stand firm in the Lord. And I want us to see three things of how we stand firm with this destination in mind. He's going to say in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. How to stand firm. you got these three subpoints. We stand firm in the Lord by imitating godly examples, by not imitating enemies of the cross of Christ, and remembering that our citizenship is in heaven. We stand firm in the Lord by imitating godly examples, not imitating the enemies of the cross of Christ, and by remembering our destination, remembering our true citizenship is in heaven. All right, this first point, um, we stand firm by what? By imitating godly examples. Look again at verse uh, 17. He says, brothers, okay, these are, he's going to say brothers, my brothers. He says it twice in our section. I mean, he, he cares for this church. This is extended family. He loves these people. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In this section, there are three imperatives. There's three commands, all right? Um, The one is found in chapter 4, verse 1, the main idea. Stand firm. I think that's the theme here. Do not waver. Do not miss the mark. Do not give up on the cause of Christ. Do not get caught up in all the false teaching. So that's one of the imperatives. Stand firm. The other two imperatives in our section are found right here in verse 17. They are, join in imitating me. That's one imperative. And the other is, keep your eyes. Keep your eyes what? On those who walk according to the example you have in us. You see Paul is saying here, you know, imitate me and imitate others who are imitating Christ. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. Um, That join in. He could have said imitate me. He says that other places. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's not what he says here. He says join in imitating me. He says like like join the the fellowship of imitators. Okay, let's be co-imitators together. Um, Let's follow Jesus together. Let's be joint imitators. He's inviting them to um, this fellowship of people who are ultimately keeping their eyes fixed on Christ and imitating Christ. He says, join the fellowship. The fellowship of what? Not the fellowship of the rings, but the fellowship of imitators. Now, who's that fellowship of imitators just in this letter? Well, of course, Paul means himself. Um, Paul does say, follow me as I follow Christ. It does on the surface sound a bit braggadocious, And yet, uh, Paul, whose life is being poured out for the sake of the gospel, as he's in jail at this moment, he says, don't think that what has happened to me by being thrown in prison for the cause of Christ is a rare thing or is a unique thing. Don't be troubled by that. I'm good, and this does not mean that we're heralding a false message. This does not mean that I've done something wrong. In fact, this is part and parcel for what it looks like to follow follow Jesus in a fallen world, in a hostile world. He says, follow me. But he's also, in this fellowship of imitators, he's already alluded to two other people, Epaphroditus and Timothy. 
Epaphroditus, uh, if you recall, um, is what many think. He's the one that actually planted this church. In chapter 2, it says that Epaphroditus, he almost dies. He risks his life in serving the Lord and serving others. And he's near death because of the work of Christ. And thankfully, he's recovered. Timothy struggled, suffered, laid down his interests for the sake of the gospel. He says, follow me as I suffer for Jesus. Follow Epaphroditus as he suffers for Jesus. Follow Timothy as he. Uh, Let's join together in this fellowship of imitators. But ultimately, the fellowship of imitators imitates Jesus. And the pinnacle of this letter in Philippians is found in something you talked about several weeks ago, chapter 2. Jesus' life is marked by sacrifice, humility, suffering. He says in chapter 2, Jesus Christ Himself took on the form of a servant. Chapter 2, verse 7. He humbled Himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Chapter 2, verse 8. He says, Do not be thrown. Though the road is a bit bumpy. Though the road seems like there's a lot of potholes in it. Don't be thrown. That's part and parcel for what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. Be a part of the fellowship of imitators as we imitate Christ. Let's follow this way together. Now, now hear this. Just it, 2,000 years ago, same is true today. Following or connecting ourselves, yoking ourselves, um, being co-laborers, linking arms with other followers of Christ, and imitating their Christ-like example is a very powerful and important ordinary means of grace that God uses to transform us, to keep us progressing forward, as Ethan talked about last week. We need one another. In that same book that I referenced, uh, in the Spiritual Disciplines by Don Whitney, we're going through it in one of my um, men's group right now, our formation group, and um, he says that uh, he talks about how we need our own devotional time, like our own personal time with the Lord, but we also need fellowship. And he says, apart from our um, own devotional time with the Lord, if we don't do that, then we're shallow. We're shallow Christians. We're Christians. We're people that have no depth. Without Christian fellowship, we're stagnant. We need both. We don't want to be shallow and we don't want to be stagnant. And part of our Christian fellowship is learning from hopefully more positive examples than negative examples, but learning from our fellow imitators. The church in many ways, a local church is a fellowship of imitators, ultimately imitating Christ and the cross of Christ. There's something about um, being with others. In that same uh, men's group I was just referencing, uh, yesterday morning we're meeting, and we had a brother who uh, last year he and his family moved to Kentucky. Uh, They were members of our church, moved to Kentucky, and just has had a bear of a time uh, finding a healthy local church to uh, connect their family to. And it's been a bunch of false starts, and where they thought they were going to join, they weren't. And it's just been a really difficult road for them. And all the while, he stayed connected to our men's group, and we would Zoom them in. And so we'd have the bunch of us, and then we have the laptop there. And it's been great to connect with him. And it's been great to have his voice. Um, But now, thankfully, finally, they have found a local fellowship. 
for them to participate in as a family. And yesterday was the last time that he was going to join us uh, via Zoom. And now he's going to continue these groups with other people, flesh and blood, whites of their eyes, like actual human beings. Now, he can continue to join our group. We loved having him there. Uh, We told him this. But there is something really essential and healthy to actually seeing the lives of other people in your fellowship. You can't do that when you're a thousand miles apart. Seeing their families, uh, seeing um, how they love their spouses, how they serve their kids, how they serve their community, how they conduct themselves at work. There's something healthy about a local fellowship of joint imitators seeking to imitate Christ together. There's something healthy and necessary about warm-blooded individuals, fellow imitators, that we need to connect with. And um, it's so important because we, just by by nature, we instinctively uh, imitate others. It's it's just who we are. It's how we're wired. Um, You want to see some of your worst faults, um, look at how your children behave. And they tend to accentuate uh, some of your greatest flaws. Um, I was in Bowling Green, Ohio this week for some meetings with other church leaders, and um, there was a number of other pastors that were there who have known me for a very long time, over a decade. And I said something that I thought was very kind, uplifting, encouraging, um, but they didn't take it that way. And they looked at me and they said, Syracuse has changed you. Now, I don't know what that means. Um, I don't think they meant it as a positive thing, but I thought it was funny, sweet, kind. But apparently, my personality has been shaped a bit um, by the people of central New York. Uh, We're cold. We're rugged. We're a bit snarky at times. Uh, We can be direct. Um, I remember uh, one time uh, we had some meetings in uh, in Orange County, California, and we land, and we get out of the airport, and uh, uh, there's just a bunch of like 50 Californians just sitting sitting on the side of the road, like to cross the street into the parking garage. And my, uh, one of the other elders, Jordan and I, looking and are like, what is going on? They're just standing there. And so we go, we hit the crosswalk button, the light changes immediately, and we walk, and then all the other 50 Californians follow. And it's like, classic California. It takes two New Yorkers across the street. What the heck are they doing over here? I mean, we take on the personality. We imitate. I mean, that's why there's regions of the country. We, we begin to uh, conform and mold to the people that we spend time with. My dad grew up on a 1,500-acre dairy farm in West Virginia. Left the farm when he was 20. And since he left the farm, like he lost his accent until he's talking to someone from the farm. And then it comes back in three seconds. All of a sudden, he's West Virginia. You know, country mama, take me home. I mean, that, he's that now. We imitate. It's just naturally what we do. And so who we surround ourselves with become vitally important. We were working with some young leaders in our church, and um, uh, we were talking about decision-making. And uh, we're trying to convey to them that three of, of some of the most important decisions we're ever going to make is this, who you follow, who you marry, and who's your tribe? Who you follow, who's your Mary, who, who's your tribe? There's probably a, a thousand other very important decisions. But those three are so important because of this important life principle of imitation. Who you follow is who you will imitate. Who you marry? Uh, my wife is a very compassionate, merciful, thoughtful person. 
After 15 years of marriage, I'm slightly more thoughtful, merciful, and compassionate. Just, just a little bit more. I begin to imitate her. Who's your tribe? The people that you spend time with. That's who you end up imitating. It's a natural thing. But the other imperative in verse 17 about who we are to imitate, it goes beyond just something natural to actually something that we have to be um, somewhat disciplined in, give some, some thought to, and, and we need to strive for. He says in verse 17, he says, join in imitating me. That's what I had just called the fellowship of imitators. And keep your eyes, keep your eyes, that's the other imperative, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He says, we're following Jesus and keep your eyes on that example. It is um, something that we must do. Um, it is a responsibility and a command. There is a, a, a single-mindedness that we need to have on not allowing our eyes to drift. Uh, going back to the road trip analogy. Um, when I start to swerve when we're on the highway, my wife doesn't say, what are you doing? What's going on? She says, what are you looking at? <laughs> she knows when I'm starting to swerve. I'm getting caught up in all the scenery or I'm looking at the sights. I mean, that's why. Because I'm swerving. I've moved my gaze. I'm not keeping my eyes on the road. And that's something that we have to discipline ourselves on. We have to prioritize. We need God's grace and strength, yes, but part of it, what Paul was saying, is we are to keep our eyes on godly examples. We have to focus. Um, 2013, I had the opportunity to go to the Final Four. It was in Atlanta. And that was the year that Syracuse University made it. Um, and if you've been following Syracuse basketball for a long time, uh, they lost to Michigan, and it was, uh, um, it was a heartbreaking thing. The first game was uh, Louisville and... Uh, Wichita State. And the Final Four is a cool thing. I'd only been once, never been since. But you go to two games on Saturday, one game on Monday. And that first game, Louisville and Wichita State, um, it's really exciting, really cool environment. And on the Jumbotron in the middle of that game, they showed Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd. They were in Atlanta filming a movie and, um, and they were there watching the game. And I can tell by the Jumbotron where, where they were sitting. And so from my seat... I found out where they were in the crowd, and I started watching them. Um, I wanted to see how they were interacting with the fans around them. I wanted to see if they cheered when other people cheer. I wanted to see what they ordered for a meal. I mean, I was, I was all in. And I wasn't there to watch Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd. I was there to watch the basketball game. But the whole second half, what I found myself doing was watching them watch the game. And I'd find myself a few times like, what are you doing? Watch the game. Pay attention. But I was just very interested. I wanted them to do something really funny, honestly. I was hoping that they were as funny in person as they were on film. But nonetheless, it was just this reminder of, nope, naturally my eyes drift. Naturally my eyes want to focus on something else. And so I had to discipline my eyes to focus on the purpose for which I was there, the basketball game. He says, keep your eyes. Keep your eyes. Focus your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What are you keeping your eyes on? Are you drifting? Are they naturally going somewhere else? There's a component here. This is a command. Grace-driven effort. Spirit will aid us in this. 
But there's a purposefulness and a mindfulness who we imitate, both naturally and who we focus on imitating, is a very important means of grace. That is how, Paul says, one of the ways we stand firm in the Lord. Well, then naturally, I mean, it, it leads to this, this second point where um, if we don't focus our eyes on the right things, um, then we are in danger of imitating the wrong things. Um, you know, you want to make sure that you... Um, not only know the right destination, but that you have the right map as well. You know, um, you don't want to be using Apple Maps. You don't know where that's going to take you. You want to stick to Google Maps. Google Maps will... I know, that was, that was controversial. I went there. But listen, I'm an iPhone guy. I'm a big fan of the blue text message. All you, all you green bubbles, I don't know what you're doing. You're messing up all of our group chats. But I am a fan of Google Maps, uh, so I will say that. You want to make sure that's taking you to the right place. You want to make sure you have the right map, that you're dialed in on the right things. And so secondly then, we stand firm in the Lord by not imitating, and then, and then it ratchets up real quick, not imitating the enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 18, for many, just for many, not some, it's not a sporadic threat, It's not something that happens occasionally. Not a few, not a little. There are many opportunities for us to imitate the wrong examples. Not many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. I've told you this, Paul said. I've told you this a lot, yet you're still drifting. Watch the road. Yet you're still drifting. I tell you this all the time. He says, and now I'm telling you with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. This is not some subject like um, far out thing. This grieves Paul. This grieves the Philippian church. He's saying that there were some, seems to allude some, some who used to profess faith in Christ, who was in their midst. He says it causes them to, to weep Tears. There are people who are now enemies of the cross who you know, they celebrated birthday parties with. They watched Bill's games together. They attended membership meetings together. They went to graduation parties together. They had, they had a, these people over their home. They were in missional communities together. And on and on. Yet now these people over time have shown themselves to not be true followers of Christ, but rather they're enemies of The cross of Christ. He could have said that they're just enemies of Christ. But here, by inserting the word cross of Christ, you get this picture, and we'll see more in verse 19, of what they were denying. They wanted the easy road. They wanted um, all the benefits of the gospel without the cross of Christ. That's both present suffering for the Christian but also some type of justification and sanctification apart from the cross of Christ. They rejected the message of the cross. They were for, these enemies, they were proponents of compromising with the culture. There are some things, yeah, that we can compromise on. Lowercase c, compromise. But we do not compromise on the closed-handed issues of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not compromise on what's called these, these first order issues. We do not compromise on a central 
understandings of historic Orthodox biblical Christianity. And we do not elevate comfort or the easy road forsaking Christ that we might have a little bit of ease right now. Uh, there's all kinds of debate as to what, uh, who are these enemies of the cross of Christ? What were they promulgating and promoting? And, you know, we can circle the wagons on that. But at the end of the day, they're denying who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what it looks like to be a follower of Him. To the point where in verse 19, Paul elaborates on what, what marks them. What marks those who we shouldn't imitate. And he gives these four pretty intense phrases. Verse 19, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their end is destruction. They have a different destination than those who are in Christ. These people who have abandoned Christ by adopting a lifestyle that is totally opposed to the redemptive work of the cross of Christ. Again, these people had names and families that were familiar to these people. So it's, it's heavy. But Paul's warning them, you do not want to go where they are going. Do not follow them on the road. It will lead you to another GPS store. But if uh, um, you ever see that episode in The Office where I think it's Dwight Schute and Michael Scott, they're following a GPS. This is you know, 15 years ago. And one of them, I think it's Michael Scott, will do everything the GPS says. And then ultimately, um, the GPS leads him right into a lake. And he just goes right into the lake. Like it's so obvious they should not go into the lake, but he follows everything that the GPS does and crashes right into water. That's in a much more serious way. Paul's saying their end is destruction. They might be blind to it, but we all know it. Do not follow their example. He says their God is their belly. What rules them is not Christ. Christ is not their king. Their appetites are their king. What, what they desire. Um, sensuality, possibly. Comfort, maybe. Comfort. Their appetites. Their desires. Their feelings. That's, that's their God. Not Jesus. They glory in their shame. They're so far gone at this point that what they should be embarrassed by, what they should be ashamed of, the things that they're saying, the things that they're thinking, the things that they're doing, they should be embarrassed by it. But not only are they not embarrassed by it now, but they glory in it. They rejoice in it. They celebrate it, and they put down anyone who does not enthusiastically celebrate the very thing that should be shameful, objectively, according to the Word of God. With minds set on earthly things. The journey without the destination in mind is, is drudgery. They don't have the right destination in mind. It's very short-sighted. It's very short term, and they have not prepared for the long haul, i.e., they're not living in light of eternity. They're living for the here and the now. Their mind is set on earthly things. And so, in a day and age like ours, 
Um, some of these temptations can creep in as we can cozy up too much with the culture. We can um, seek and make decisions and actions based on our own comfort in an attempt to avoid hardship that comes with bearing the name of Christ. Paul says, don't fall into that trap. Imitate godly examples. Join us in the fellowship of imitators. Don't follow people who are promulgating that. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Um, we talk about godly examples. In it, there's this word imitate. Hebrews 13, 7. The author of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. And he says, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We talked about a fellowship in a local church, but there is also something, another means of grace God gives us when it comes to this fellowship, fellowship of imitators, and that is godly leaders, godly elders, godly men, godly women, um, but particularly elders for a moment. I mean, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. There is a real danger if a church grows too large. I'm not against mega churches or large churches. But there is a danger when a church gets too large, um, or if we just do church in the meta, or we just do church online, where we don't get the opportunity to observe and see and interact and smell how those in leadership live and act, make decisions. And when we get the opportunity to interact with them and their families, imperfect as they may be, the, word, the phrase above reproach doesn't mean sinless perfection. But even in, in, in their blind spots, even when they confess sin, even when they mess up, we still see this general characteristic of them pursuing Christ. And you know, may not know all the elders in this church the same as, as others, and yet, God says they're a blessing. They're a protection. And they're someone, people that you can say, you know, follow them. As they follow Christ. And of course the elders in this church are not the only one. There's other godly men and women. But particularly, if you think about this, I mean, books. Thankful for books. I read all the time. Podcasts. I listen to podcasts all the time. Online sermons. I listen to them all the time. But one of the applications of something like this is to say, okay, books, podcasts, online sermons, all that stuff. Blogs, Twitter, Sure, X, whatever it's called now, all that. They can be helpful. But oftentimes, the author, the podcaster, the online sermon, or the poster, he who posts, we don't get the opportunity to see them flesh and blood. We don't know how that person loves their spouse. We don't know how they talk to their children. We don't know what their personal devotional time looks like. We've never been in their home. They've never been in ours. We've never sat in a worship service with them. So as helpful as these things may be, we need to not allow them to have so much influence over us more than those that we have in our midst. Particularly the godly examples that God has given us as an ordinary means of grace. So we listen to those things, we absorb those things, we can even consume those things, but we do it in the proper order, 
And we guard ourselves and recognize that even if they're promoting truth, we can't always verify the character of the people who are pushing those things. And so we receive it, but not to the expense of learning from those, imitating those in this fellowship and in leadership of this local church. I hope that makes sense, what I'm trying to say. There's a priority here. There's a protection here. There's a fellowship of imitators here. And it centers on character. And it centers on pursuit of Christ. And part of understanding someone's character is we interact with them. And we do life with them. Okay. So we see we stand firm in the Lord by imitating godly examples, not imitating those who are enemies of the cross. And then finally, we stand firm in the Lord by remembering that our citizenship is in heaven. So he's got this this very stark contrast here. Verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Our minds are not set on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. For from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we long for that day. We live in light of eternity who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. You say we're dual citizens, assuming most in this room are American citizens. Sure, we're American citizens, yes, but we're also heavenly citizens. And one of those citizenships trumps the other. Our citizenship is in heaven. Heaven is our destination. Eternity is our destination. And we are transformed by the miraculous power and grace of Christ as we keep our eyes fixed on Him and our eternity that He guarantees. And Paul beautifully reminds us that do not let your perspective on the ground or in the present dictate everything. The perspective on the ground can be misleading. We might not be able to see things as they actually are. So we don't let the temporary, the immediate dictate what we do, but rather we remember who Christ is, who we are, and what our destination is. Our citizenship is in heaven. And then he reminds us, he says, our bodies, frail, aging, difficult, temptations, all of that, those bodies will be transformed someday to be like His glorious body. Remember that. So the, the discomfort, um, uh, the, the pain, the suffering, remember He's in prison that we experience in the here and now, pales in comparison to what life will be like in eternity. And He says that Jesus has the power and authority to subject all things. And He is the prototype His glorified body is the prototype that shows us what our glorified bodies will one day look like. Our destination is eternity. And because that is our destination, we can endure the drudgery, the sufferings, the difficulties, the hardships, the ostracization of the culture, all of it, because we eagerly await. We can endure the road trip because we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. And that's not a fake threat. 
It's not like Vladimir Putin saying he's going to do something. Like This is the Lord Himself saying, I have the power and authority to do this, and I will. You can bank on it. You can guarantee it. And then He closes, the last verse, and He says, Therefore, my brothers... Notice all the affectionate terms in, this, in, the, in our last verse. Therefore, my brothers... You see His conclusion. Therefore. Therefore what? Imitate us. Don't imitate the enemies of the cross. Remember, your citizenship is in heaven. Therefore... My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He's laying it on pretty thick. I mean, there is a ton of affection in this verse. You know, it's, it's like, you know, I love you more. No, I love you more. No, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. You know, it's one of like, it's, it's, he's laying it on thick. It's a little too much for those of us who are not as in touch with our feelings. And yet, you see the deep love, care, and affection that He has. I love you. I long for you. You're my joy. You're my crown. You're my beloved. You're my brothers. So, so He's affectionately and emotionally appealing to them. Truth, grace, love, affection. He's saying, stand firm. Do not drift. Do not turn aside. Do not turn your eyes away from Jesus onto yourself. Do not turn your eyes away from Jesus onto uh, the enemies of the cross. Do not turn your eyes away from Jesus onto the culture. Do not turn your eyes away from King Jesus onto earthly governments, but keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Please. I love you. He's saying, please do this. So that you may reach your destination. And I'm not saying it's all works righteousness. Like if you don't do that, it's all dependent on you. No. If you're in Christ, He will preserve you until the end. But part of our responsibility, His sovereignty, His grace, D.A. Carson calls it grace-driven effort, but part of it is we imitate godly example. We keep our eyes fixed on godly examples and we remember our citizenship. That we don't get distracted, that we don't swerve, that we don't sway, and that we don't lose hope, confidence, and our ultimate aim. I listened to Ethan's sermon that he preached last week. I listened to it uh, yesterday while I was setting up a dehumidifier in my basement. How about that? All right. And uh, Ethan ended his sermon with a Spurgeon quote, and I'm going to do the same, though my quote is going to be a bit longer. But I'm going to end with this. Thinking about where we keep our eyes fixed. All right. Hear these words. I think they're beautiful words and a great reminder, and I think a very helpful summary. Quote, It is always the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite. He is constantly trying to make us look at ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never continue to the end. You do not have the joy of His children. You have such a wavering hold on Jesus. But all these are thoughts about self. And we never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is everything. Remember, therefore, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ 
who saves you. It is not even faith, although that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and Christ's merits. Therefore, do not look so much at the hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Do not look to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Do not look to your faith, but to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. We will never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our deeds, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we are to overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking to Jesus. Keep your eyes simply on Him. Let His death, His sufferings, His merits, His glories, His intercession be fresh upon your mind. When you waken in the morning, look to Him. When you lie down at night, look to Him. Do not let your hopes or fears come between you and Jesus. Follow hard after Him, and He will never fail you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Father, we thank You for the cross of Christ. May You, by Your grace, aid us in keeping our eyes fixed on You and the fellowship of imitators of You as we go down this long journey of life. There's things that we can remember fondly, and there's a lot of difficulties, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we rejoice in the merits and the work of Christ, securing those who place faith and trust in Him as citizens of heaven. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.